Samuel chapter 17, if you turn there this morning, please. 1 Samuel 17, and I think 16 and 17, and really that whole cycle of David's dealings with King Saul at the end of Saul's uh, tour as the king and the introduction of David to the nation, I think it really is demonstrating biblical ownership or biblical stewardship. We're asking the question, I think the passage is asking the question, who's the shepherd? And just by way of review, as you read the story, God wants a king after his own heart to shepherd his people. That's the first introduction we have of David by person in 1 Samuel 13 when Samuel renders a judgment from God on Saul. He says, God's going to reject you and he's going to select for himself a king after his own heart. And it will be David. It'll be King David. And from that time on, we start seeing Saul's decline. We see David in 1 Samuel 16 introduced by name, the son of Jesse, where Samuel is being told to anoint the next king. And uh, the big message there is that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. It's not what God doesn't see as man sees. And so Eliab looks like he would fit the bill, but God said, no, the heart isn't the one I want. And it isn't necessarily that you have to be physically unattractive to have a beautiful heart because it turns out when David is finally revealed, he's good looking too. There's a genetic thing in, De- in Jesse's house, okay? And so it's really not about the outward appearance at all. It's about the heart and God knows. And this is so vital to understanding stewardship. You and I have been given what we've been given, material and immaterial, the physical body, everything about our physical lives and our spiritual lives. And these are stewardships. Everything God has given us, is life itself is the great stewardship. And what is your heart like? What is it like? What does God say when he evaluates the heart? When the word of God cuts through in Hebrews 4.12 and can be a critic or a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart, what's going on inside? With David, it's the Psalms. And so with the Holy Spirit today in Ephesians 5, we should be speaking to one another in Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. What's your heart like? And are you a steward of that inner person that God is making you? I love the, um, the idea that is purported to have been, many philosophers have probably said this through history, but the one that, that I remember speaking about this is John Adams. His advice about being a virtuous person is to imagine yourself as virtuous. Think of the person that you would like to be. Picture yourself. And, you know, imagine with, with oppressed pair of slacks, not all slovenly. Imagine yourself like you'd like to be, and then, having used that faculty of God-given imagination, try to live to that standard, try to be that person because you've imagined it. And after the flesh, I suspect our imaginations run short, fall short. But with the Word of God and the person of Christ in our perspective, imagine yourself as one who is putting on Christ. Let's be Christian about this. And in the Holy Spirit, make the choices that conform that character to the Son. Be in the Word and let Him renovate your thinking, for example, as we're doing right now. So, so this, is the, this is the topic in 1 Samuel 16, and the question of who the shepherd is, well, the one God said. And He's the one that's equipped because He's got the right heart. And it turns out He's not just equipped in heart, He's equipped in hands, and that's 1 Samuel 17. 
So God makes the decision who the next king is, and then he shows the nation in 1 Samuel 17 through circumstantial arrangement. God puts the right man, the right supervillain in place for the next king who is already designated to demonstrate that he is indeed God's man to shepherd his people Israel. It's so on the nose that he's the shepherd of the people that he can't even use kingly weaponry. He has to use shepherd's weaponry. Now, why is he good with the sling? If you ask little kids this that are in the homeschool co-op, they will say because God was with him. He's good with a sling because God was with him. That is likely true, but the text says nothing about Holy Spirit aiming devices. It says nothing about the technical prowess of I was pretty good, but the Holy Spirit turned me into an instantaneous expert. What we know, though, is that he's faithful with everything his father assigns to him. He says, you tend the flock, so he tends the flock. And what do you have to do to tend the flock? You have to watch them. You have to... You have to soothe them, you have to feed them, you have to lead them, and you have to protect them. And I believe, personally, this is my theory about David, and i like to share it with you. I think he's good with the sling because he's faithful with what his father entrusted to him, and he needs to be good with the sling. And he has time to be good with the sling, and he's out there perfecting his skill, and he's not out there feeling sorry for himself, probably, most of the time. It doesn't say, but based on what we see in the story and, and the heart that God is describing, I think David is good with a sling because he's supposed to be, because he's a shepherd and that's the task that's assigned to him. Oh, well, I got to be good with a sling to protect the flock. It's the most efficient way to scare away or to kill one of these predators that comes after my flock. And David clearly says that as we pick up the story of 1 Samuel 17, when he's telling King Saul his resume, Saul says, you can't take down Goliath. And David says, oh, I can. I've, I've killed worse enemies than Goliath. Let me see if I can find the place where we want to pick up the story. Um, we said Eliab in verse 28 was, was not the shepherd. The question is, who's the shepherd? Eliab in chapter 16 is the one that Samuel says, surely before the Lord is his anointed. He's the, he's the, the firstborn. He's got all that firstborn assertiveness. He's got all that firstborn, I know how it is because I did this before everybody else was even around. He's that guy, and we love the firstborn, but God says, no, he's not the one. Now Eliab, the firstborn, we meet him again. He says something, and it isn't intelligent. When he sees David obeying his father, doing exactly what his father sent him to do, take the, the care package to his brothers, when he sees David, he is immediately jealous. He saw his brother get anointed over him. His brother is going to rule over him. He's going to be a king over him. And, oh, that must chafe with Eliab. You just have to imagine the way sibling rivalry after the flesh is. His anger burned against David, and he said, why have you come down? Do y'all know the answer? It's like that song, Mary, Did You Know? Well, the questions in Mary, Did You Know, are answered in the Gospels, generally by the angel Gabriel. <laughs> yes, because she, the angel told her. All right, so um, why have you come down? Does anybody know why David came down? Because his dad told him to. Why did you fix that rifle? Why did you put that rifle together so fast? Because you told me to, drill sergeant. That, that's why I did it, because I do what I'm told. And that's the idea. With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You aren't even important. You don't even have an important job, and you can't even do that. That's the attitude Eliab has. I believe this is, I believe this is pro projection. This is Eliab is standing there for 40 days with the Goliath out there saying, I just need one soldier to come fight me. Eliab's all reacher. He's all standing big and strong. He could go fight Goliath. Nope. He doesn't have it. Nobody has it. The country doesn't have a shepherd among them to go out there and take on this single combat until David shows up. 
And so Eliab is projecting on David that he doesn't do his job, that he's not a good shepherd. It's obvious, it's on the nose. The shepherd, who's the shepherd? Are, are you just such a bad shepherd that you're here to, uh, to get some entertainment? I know your insolence and your wickedness of heart. Remember that, zing, what is the story in 1 Samuel 16? God selects David for his heart, rejects Eliab for his heart, apparently. What is the topic, Eliab? I know your heart, and we mentioned this last time. Do you know someone's heart? You don't really know the heart. God knows the heart. Don't pretend to be God. Oh, I can just see the way your eyes look, that you have stuff going on in there. No, no. Some people have, um, some people have a more expressive face than others. And some people's expressive face expresses something they don't even mean when they're just sitting there. Why are you so angry? I'm asked this from times. People say that I have a, an angry looking resting face. Let me see if I can give my resting face. I'm sitting there. And why are you angry? No, I'm just reading. Um, <laughs> you, go, you don't know someone's heart. But, but Eliab, again, is projecting. He's saying what's true of himself about David. And this is, this is no way to live. You with siblings, you with brothers, young boys, brothers at home. Think about this. That man or son, that boy stands or falls before God for his creator. And your job in his life is not to put him in his place. It's to remind him of his position in Christ. It's to elevate him. It's to edify. This is so easy to be a breaker downer, but you're supposed to be a builder upper. It's so easy to fall into the flesh and do this because you're not dealing with God yourself and your own personal relationship with him. For you've come down here in order to see the battle. And so we said Eliab's a sheep. Remember that? He's one of the sheep, even though he's accusing David of not being a good shepherd. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not just a question? I'm just, I'm just gathering information. What actually? And notice David doesn't need to fix Eliab. He's not going to, oh, yeah, you're going to tear me down? Well, I'm going to tear you down. No, he moves on. He's, he's, had this, he's, he's fought this fight before. He's, he's been through this dance, and he knows how it ends. And so I think he says, I'll just move on. He turned away from him to another and said the same thing, and the people answered the same thing. By the way, context, what's the same thing? The people are saying, whoever kills Goliath gets to be the king's son-in-law. The family has no more income taxes, and he's going to be um, a, a wealthy man uh, that the king will enrich him as, as new aristocracy. It's a knighthood plus waiting. It's like a prince a, like a, like a, a prince billet right away if you'll just do this. And David does it, it turns out, with one shot, one kill. When the words which David spoke were heard, they told them to Saul, and he sent for him. And we said, uh, we don't have all the dialogue. You can't ever tell all the things that happen in a story. But notice the way the writer produces this, the way Samuel or whichever prophetic writer writing word for word God's word says, he introduces the dialogue between David and, Sam, and, and King Saul with David speaking first. They told Saul, Saul sent for David, and then Saul doesn't say, come forward and, uh, and oppress. That's not the way it's presented. David speaks first in the narrative, the way it's written, the way that God is portraying the story. David comes with the heart. Let no man's heart fail on account of Goliath, on him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I, King Saul, will solve this. And he doesn't say I, he says your servant. He's, he's humble, but he's assertive. Oh, that we could be both humble and assertive. Too assertive with no humility becomes aggressive and boorish, and it's not the fruit of the Spirit. Too humiliated, too placating, and, and not assertive, too 
um, I don't want to say humble because it's not. It's, a, it's another form of passivity, and, and it's, I think it's a form of arrogance because you're destroying God's image. You're supposed to be assertive and humble and tell the truth. And David doesn't really have a whole lot of stomach acid, apparently, about this. The most uh, interesting thing about this to me as a young man, when I was a young man, was to think of this as uh, a cool, collected operator, the way David thinks. He is not... Like, I get sweaty palms right about now in the story. He doesn't seem to be, his blood is ice cold. He is just in execution mode. That's the way he's portrayed. And this is what makes for a great hero, by the way, in any narrative. As somebody that in the face of the danger is able to fully account for it, he's not crazy. He knows he may die, but he is thinking and he's responding appropriately to the circumstance. And this is what we want. Then Saul said that, by the way, that makes you a good steward of the crisis. It makes you a good steward of yourself and what God gave you in the crisis. So David, Saul says to David, you're not able to go against the Philistine to fight with him for you are but a Na'ar while he has been a warrior from his Na'aroth. You're a youth ready for basic training. And he is, a, is like this hard battle hardened uh, warrior in his prime is what he's saying. It doesn't mean David is 13. He's, he's likely something between 17 and 20. He's, he looks like a grown man, and he may be right about ready to go and, uh, and enter the, the service. Remember, David's three older brothers are with the army. So he's some sort of teenager uh, toward the end of that phase, it seems. But David said to Saul, and this is the resume. David said, okay, King Saul. And now notice he doesn't say, oh, well, the king said no, so I then, in obedience to the authority, will say yes, sir. No, he realizes that in the conversation, there's room for some discussion. It may be that, uh, that you have to sometimes say, okay, I understand what you're saying. Listen, I'm with you. I'm going to do what you ask, but can I please ask a question about this? Can we say something more than just this is the end of the discussion? When the, when the, when the boss says that's it, I don't want to hear anything else, you have, to, you have to respect those wishes. But notice that he's not afraid. I'm not afraid to talk to the king. And so if, if somebody in high authority like this calls you on the carpet, I mean, that's, that's a lifetime event right there. But David's already been in the king's court. He's dealt with the king a great deal. They've been conversation partners for a while with David playing his, um, his stringed instrument for the king. And he says, when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him. And I rescued it from his mouth. Now, that's not good math. It's good shepherding. It's good shepherding, but it's not good math. The math is my life is not worth the life of one of these sheep. And sometimes, as we said, the lion gets his tax. He, he's going to only eat one, and then we'll live for, for it to, to tend the rest of the flock another day. There's all kinds of ways to rationalize this, but I want you to notice, David doesn't think mathematically about it. He recognizes a sacred trust, an obligation, a duty that's been placed on him, and he is a good steward. He's... He's, he's got this radical stewardship idea that that's mine, that's my responsibility, I'm going to do my job. Now notice he didn't do it to say, I'm someday going to go speak to the king and I need to be able to tell him something solid. He doesn't know that. He doesn't know how today's actions are going to affect tomorrow. Have you thought about this? I've thought about this a lot. He doesn't know that killing the lion and the bear today means telling the king tomorrow, I've got this, and also has demonstrated I can do this. For myself, I, if you can kill a lion, even an Asiatic lion, you can kill a giant Philistine. 
That's an a fortiori argument, I believe. Lions are way more dangerous than humans with spears because they're faster, because they're stronger. Their bodies are made. They, they, their weapons aren't held. Their weapons are them. And so, I mean, so, so, so David is faithful with what's been entrusted to him. He puts his life on the line. And isn't that echoing in the, in the New Testament when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. David put his life on the line for his flock in a literal sense where they're actually sheep. And again, he doesn't know how today's faithfulness, today's duty is going to set him up for tomorrow's success. But, but we are watching this. We know how the story ends. We know that it ends with skull fracture and, and one army defeats the other. We know that David wins and that Saul has slain his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. We've all been to Sunday school and heard this. But have you thought about how being faithful today where I'm bored or where I'm left into this, no, this dead-end job with no possible promotion, I'm the chief shepherd of the little flock here. Have you noticed how if I'm faithful today and I'm faithful tomorrow and I'm faithful the next day, that that builds a pattern, it builds a reputation, it builds not just what people say about you, but it builds a lifetime of who you actually are by your conduct. In the military, um, maybe you know this, I don't know about other federal things, but y'all could probably, some of y'all could tell me. In the military, there's an evaluation system where they know whether they have good quality people or not. It's, it's, it's the officer evaluation report. And, and, uh, and there's a non-commissioned officer evaluation report, and it's this big task where you have to write uh, a report on someone's performance. It's a perfor- performance review. And the, what I experienced in the federal service that I served in, in the United States Army, with these officer evaluation reports were they very rarely reflected the reality or the measure of the person you're evaluating. It very rarely, you could not take the piece of paper that someone had written about this person and then look and then think you had a snapshot of what it's like to work with them or whether he's on mission or whether he was good at what he did and competent. It said competent. It said promote at first, uh, first uh, opportunity. It said a lot of things. But then when you looked at these people, sometimes you'd be like, how did, how did that happen? And it was just a system that, like all systems, get gamed. It was humans that were inflating the system. Now, it, it turned out if you, if you didn't have it systematized where the bosses are controlling how, they come, how these lower reports come out, then you would actually be telling the truth and there would be, um, there would be feuds and, and, uh, and lawsuits and there would be lawfare and it'd be crazy. And so um, it's just a broken system. But, um, but I, I did notice that you could not take a person's resume builder OER and then know whether they were a quality officer. You couldn't. Uh, but... If you, with God watching, are walking with him day by day by day, the only report that matters is his opinion. And when you get your officer evaluation report at the judgment seat of Christ, you are going to like his evaluation if you have a consistent pat track record of service. And that's what David obviously has here. Uh, my, my favorite verse of the resume is verse 35. He says, when a lion or bear came and took a lamb for the flock, verse 35, I went out after him and attacked him. And I rescued it from his mouth. So I went and so two hands on the sheep, maybe throw an elbow to, to smack the thing in the jaw to get, get him to let loose. Now the lion has lost his quarry. Is he mad? 
Is he reacting in anger? Is he afraid because of an attacker attack? Whatever it is, now the lion is rearing up at him. I seized him when he rose up against me. I seized him by his beard and struck him and killed him. I seized him by his beard. Well, the beard of a lion is the mane. Okay, so these aren't the Savo lions in the Chicago um, Museum of Natural History or whatever. Uh, the, the, they were weird, maneless, twin male lions that killed all these humans in, in Africa in the Savo man-killer story. Um, these are, this is a lion with a mane, and the Asiatic lion does have a mane. There, there aren't many of those left. But he killed the lion with, with a strike. What kind of strike is that? I always wonder about this. Shepherd has a staff, and David comes to the battle line with a stick in his hand. Glass going to say, "Why do you have a stick?" But, but he's got a stick in his hand, and it may be in his right hand, maybe right-handed, and or or left-handed, and uh, and strike the line with a stick. I don't think you punch a line between the eyes and it kills it. I think you have to use something, but it doesn't say. Just as I struck him, I also would point out that a sling can be used as a club. But that's a little dangerous because the rock may fall out or something. But you can use it without letting the rock go. You could just have the, the longer distance on the moment arm and use it to strike that way. But nevertheless, however David did it, he was able to kill a lion and he's standing there living without you know, one of his arms torn off or something because he's competent. He's really good at fighting. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he's taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. So then you have the story that Saul is, okay, so you wear my armor and you use my equipment and you can fight him that way. David girded the sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. And he said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I've not tested them. And David took them off and he took his stick his stick, his makel, a word that we don't have very commonly in the Old Testament scriptures. I looked up every one of these times, they use, these, these times the word stick is used. It's used here and in um, verse uh, 42. He took his stick. This is uh, the, the word for the sticks that are translated as rod. It's a small stick that Jacob used to um, try to get the animals to make striped animals. He made striped sticks, and he tried to use sympathetic magic in the book of Genesis, which is one of the weirdest stories of the book of Genesis. And it shows you what a knucklehead Jacob actually was. But um, it's not a super common word. That, that most commonly occurs there. But apparently it could be a rod. It could also be a word for a shepherd's staff. So it's a generic word for a stick. So he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had even in his pouch. And his sling was in his hand. He approached the Philistine. Now, this is the other side of the panoply story that you have in the beginning in verse 17 when it describes Goliath. The camera slowly goes over Goliath's armor and his, and his, his weaponry, and you have this picture. And now it's like the parallel story. David is very un impressive with his equipment where Goliath's equipment is very impressive and then but but see the, the point of the story is who's the shepherd the man after God's own heart who was actually a shepherd the Philistine came on and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him and when the Philistine looked and saw David he disdained him for he was a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance we don't have words reported here. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the, it's in verse 43. So he sees David, and in, in um, boxing or in MMA fights now, this is the part of the story they call the stare down. 
And this is where the two fighters are not fighting yet, but they're looking at each other. And everybody wants to make a big dramatic thing today about the stare down where they look at each other and they try to show, to psych each other out. And maybe I can be, look mean and tough and big and strong and, and scare the other guy. So I look really angry. And so that's kind of the, the, what's about to happen in verses 43 through 47. In the Hebrew, it looks like that. But in, in the English, I've translated to say, then the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with makel, makeloth, with, with sticks? So this is uh, possibly a shepherd's staff, and he does have a shepherd's staff, but it's a generic word for, uh, for a stick. And he says it in the plural. David doesn't have multiple sticks. He has a stick, and that is why we think that Goliath is, is, is being pejorative about this. He's like, come on, mere sticks. What do you, you got some sticks? That's what he's saying. My dog, that you come to me with sticks. Now, that's interesting that David is here to be the shepherd for Israel to, to take out the threat. Well, you are kind of a wolf among the flock here. So it's funny that he says that. And um, so am I a dog? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Uh, that little verse, that little part of verse 43 doesn't always jump out to us. But Goliath started the conversation about, about God. Goliath started the conversation about uh, deity, about the gods. David is going to finish the conversation. But how do you curse someone by Philistine gods? Well, you say something about Dagon which is not a fish. I know you've heard, and we all talked about Dagon's a fish god, the, apparently the god of the Philistines. It makes sense he's a fish god because they're Greek sea peoples and they've got Neptune, so it's, but it's probably not. We dug up Ugarit since they had that theory, and Dagon is a Baal. He's like a, he's like a god across the sky. Um, so he's one of the Baals. So to say he's a fish probably isn't true, and I know you might have seen depictions of these people worshiping fish and stuff but because dog d-a-g is fish in, in hebrew but dagon is apparently not the fish god anyway the point is how do you call curses well you say something about dagon dagon curse you or dagon uh, render you powerless before me or 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 something far worse and vulgar david doesn't curse goliath by yahweh i don't think what david says is a curse I think David honors Yahweh on the occasion of Goliath's death when he speaks to Goliath. See, it's not about me calling down God's vengeance on you. This is about me exalting and glorifying Yahweh through what's about to happen to you. And that seems to be what David's going to say. And that's why I've slowed it down here. I want to really hear the dialogue because it's the most important part of the story. It turns out the things that they say to each other, the camera really slows down in the screenplay. Now, why does Goliath say, I put a cue on the board because it was a question. Why does Goliath say, um, do you come to me with sticks? Um, you all probably know the next slide is an A slide, the answer slide. But just think about it. Why does he say, do you come to me with sticks? Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? In the story, I mean. He is definitely mocking him. So it's a way to, definitely a way to put him down. Why does he mention the stick? Who did? Yeah, so if David had a stick, which it says he took his staff in his hand, it's because it's what he can see. 
Goliath can see David's stick. And so he's riffing off of what he sees. Is that important in the story? If you take 1 Samuel 16 and 17 as a unit, that God is doing something that people can't see, that he sees, I think it's very important in the story. Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? You have no idea what you're facing. You don't have any clue. Elisha prays that his servant's eyes will be opened, that there are more with us than with them. See, this this is the walk by faith and not by sight. Goliath has no options but to just see what he sees. He sees that he weighs 450 pounds or whatever, crazy, nine foot six and f- full of muscle and bone. He, he, he sees what he sees, but he doesn't see what's really going on. And that's what the Bible will do for us. It tells us God's perspective. And he, God sees the invisible. He sees the spiritual. He sees what's really going on. It's very helpful to notice that in the story. Then the Philistine said to David, he's already said the stick thing, come to me, come to me, and I will natan, you, you Hebrew students with me real quick, I'm going to show you something really painful. The noon has assimilated of, the, of natan right here, and that's, that's classic uh, cow imperfect natan. You come to me and I will give natan, I will give your flesh to the bird in the singular of the heavens or the sky and to the beast, the behemoth of uh, the field. Come to me and I'll give your flesh to the bird of the sky and the beast of the field. Now that's powerful. When someone big and scary says that to you, you might feel like, um, I just imagine my body being picked apart by birds uh, and, and, and while an animal's eating my flesh. It's scary, horrible thought. And, um, and that's the reason he says it. It's disdain, but it's also intimidation. And um, what Goliath says really has nothing to do with the reality of the situation. It's just what he says. And that's really helpful. People can say all kinds of things. It doesn't make them true. And uh, you're definitely hearing what's in Goliath's heart. He's revealing the contents of his heart. But so what? doesn't say anything about how this is going to turn out. And that's where faith comes in. How is it that we hear something that isn't true and believe it? And we hear something that is true and don't believe it. It's so strange that that happens. I heard what was said Sunday and I believed it. It's God's word. It's true. I had that spiritual perspective of the things of God. And here we are on Tuesday, you know, because Christmas is over. And here we are on Tuesday. And um, this person says something that, that I just wonder if that's true and it bothers me. And it's not true. And you know God's word and you know because you've trusted him. See, trusting in God is a real method of knowing things. Come to me and I'll give the flesh, your flesh to the birds and the beasts. By Yomer David. And then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin. Becherev, that's the sword, the cherev, the chanit, the, the spear, and the kidon, kidon, that word is a question mark word. They're not, these nouns, I'm real interested in this because of military affairs and edge weapons, but um, it may be that that's a javelin. All the traditional translations say javelin. It could be a scimitar, like a small curved dagger. 
That could be what he says. But it's one of Goliath's very impressive weapons. And I like that it would be the javelin because the Greek sea people's thing and the, all that uh, connection. And so we've always thought that word is javelin. But anyway, I wanted to point it out that it's, this one may be, a, may be something that you don't throw that you use to cut with. Okay, so you come to me with these physical things that I can see. You see my stick. But I come to you in the name of Yahweh Sabaoth, God of the army ranks of Israel, whom you've taunted. I come to you with uh, something you can't see. And you can curse me by your gods, but the one who exists is really empowering me. And so David in this moment, by invoking the name of Yahweh, is towering over Goliath. Goliath doesn't see it. Nobody sees it but God and David. That name, yod heh vav heh Yahweh Sabaoth, God of the army ranks of Israel. Let's look at that for a second. This is what it looks like in Hebrew. Bashem, this is in the name, in the Shem of Yahweh. This is the way, this name that your Bible always says, L-O-R-D in all caps. This is the way it's always written in the Masoretic text. And that's a yod heh vav heh based on the word, apparently, hayah, the verb to be or for existence. And it, is a, it starts with a yod, which seems like to be third person, which is what, but, but it's, but it is still mysterious to us. And we think, since God says it in Exodus 3, when in the burning bush, tell him that I am sent you, that it has to do with God's self-existence, that there is no further need to say something when you say God is. You don't need to say uh, because he's sustained by creation or by some inner power or some other. He just is. And we all can't say that. We cannot say I am we have to say I am because he made us, because he sustains us, because we're derivative. But God isn't derivative. I think that that's why. And the reason we translate this Lord generally is it's a traditional throwback to the second century BC. When the rabbis that spoke Greek translated the Hebrew Masoretic text, or I should say the Hebrew scriptures, and whatever, it wasn't the Masoretic necessarily, but in whatever um, text manuscripts they had, they translated from Hebrew into Greek. And when they got to this word, they always wrote K-U-R-I-O-S, kurios, in Greek. Kurios in Greek is Lord. Sometimes it's translated sir correctly because it means someone in higher authority than being respectful to, sir. But it is Lord. And, the, and so we've always thought that commentary carries some weight, that the rabbis think this self-existence of God being the ultimate, the ultimate one, the ultimate being, makes him the Lord of all. That's Yahweh. But this word is a very interesting word, Sabaoth, in the name of Yahweh, of the Sabaoth. And Sabah is a a lot. Sabah means a multitude. And oath is a feminine plural ending. So the multitudinous multitudes. It's the allots. He's the God of the hosts, of the manys. When you say host in our culture, you might think of chilies. Um, You know, please wait to be seated. Um, or some other, you know, I'm having a party, welcome to my party, I'm the host. Um, that's one use of the word in English, but the older use of this word host is a multitude. And usually when the multitude shows up, it isn't because um, there's a party. Usually it's a war party. You could have a host of, um, of, um, of locusts, for example, portrayed in the Bible, often in the prophets as an army, takes out your food crop. So um, 
I think when he says Yahweh Sava'oth, he's talking about the army that is not physical. He's not talking about the many Israelites or the many nations. I think he's talking about the angelic myriads. I believe that's what it means when he says the Lord of hosts. And so the hosts, the many, I think are arrayed for battle. And I think a lot of times when you read the Lord of Sabaoth or the Lord of hosts, it's in a military or judgment context. God, it's like he's got his uniform on at this point. And he's, he's in military array. But then he says something, and, and the reason I, put, I wanted to spend some time on this, what the next thing is very interesting. He says, God, Elohe, this is, the, this is the, the construct plural. It's Elohim, but it's because there's another word that follows. Elohim of Ma'arkoth. This is from Arak, A-R-K, uh, A-R-A-K. That word uh, can mean to lay out in line or a line. And so when you use it this way, it means the ranks, the military formations. So like if you were in the Napoleonic or you call it the squares, the, the squares of France or something, or the legions. And that's what, he's, that's what this word ends up being used. The army ranks I've translated for this word, Marokoth, uh, of Israel. <clears throat> so he's the God of heaven and earth. And he's the captain of the Lord's army in heaven, the heavenly hosts, and the army ranks of Israel. He's the God of this military. And I, I, the reason I want to point this out is I truly believe that the, the message David is sending, and the re, what the writer is giving us of, of the selected text that he's given, we're supposed to see that there is something going on above while what's happening here is taking place, and we don't see it. There's more happening than we know. And the God who rules all is interested in little old me and you and what's happening here. And you and I might be fighting a battle that no one will ever name, but the angels may be cheering as we say no to ourselves, as we say yes to God, as we struggle through the oppression or the opponent or whatever it is, and we say, I'm not going to react in sinful rage and anger or whatever the thing is, I'm going to respond to God and trust him and give a kind word that turns away wrath. You never know what's happening, in other words, in the invisible realm while you're serving God here in the physical. And it's so hard to keep that in mind sometimes because the, the threat, the Goliath, the, the Philistine army is just in your face is all you can imagine. But David, I think, references the armies of God and that Israel represents the armies of God on earth. <clears throat> and that's the way they're, that's their worldview. They think of themselves as the God of heaven, they're God's special nation because that's how he has revealed himself. Today, Yahweh, the Lord, will hand you over into my hand. He will give you over. And I will strike you, Nacha, I will strike you, and I will remove your head from upon you. The reason I say from upon you is because um, from upon you. Uh, you could just say, take your head off. But the Hebrew way of doing it in the prepositional phrases is way more graphic. You're supposed to see him without a head in that thought. I will remove your head from upon you. Then I will give the corpse of the encampment of the Philistines today to the bird of the sky and to the living one of the earth, almost saying exactly what Goliath said. And they will know all on the earth that there is a God for Israel. 
Your Bible says a God in Israel, but the word is not ba, it's la. And that, that preposition means for, to, or toward. And I think this means that we have a God who is on our side. And yes, he's in Israel. But that phrase, there's a God in Israel, means there's a God fighting for us. And all your people will know that. All the people here on earth will know this because of this. And isn't it true? This is not, <laughs> we talk about in the, in, at Lexington, the shot heard around the world, right? Um, the, the first skirmish that started off the Revolutionary War. Um, there was no report of gunpowder. There's no supersonic or subsonic or anything, no explosion here. But aren't we all impacted by the fact that God showed up here in Ella, in the Valley of Ella, and uh, delivered the Philistines into the hands of the Israelites? All will know. You and I are, I think, perhaps prophesied here. All on the earth will know there's a God for Israel. How do you know there's a God for Israel? He told you. He tells you in the word of God, his works on behalf of his people. And um, today's a good day to remember that in the culture you live in as we slide uh, away from God into anti-Semitism as a people. All this assembly will yada, they will all know that not by sword or by spear does Yahweh save. This is fun. Merry Christmas right here. This right here is Yehoshia. This is Yod Shin Ayin, which is Yasha, and it's many derivations, many words are developed out of this word, and it's one of the ways, one of the, it's one of the words you get from it is Yeshua, salvation, that is the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then not by spear or sword does Yah, sword or spear does Yahweh save, for the battle is the Lord's. Literally, for unto Yahweh is the battle. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In the major narratives that capture our attention and our imagination, I want you to watch as you read your Bible this year coming up. So much of God's narratives emphasize the lead-up or the dialogue or the explanation, and the actual event is an afterthought. In one of the Gospels, I think it's in Matthew or in Luke, when they crucify Jesus, it's the beginning of a verse, but it's the continuation of a prior sentence, and it's like a participial phrase. And, and, and then they crucified him. But all the paragraphs before were what people were saying about him, because that's the emphasis, because that's the focus. How do you relate to this event, and how do you compare it to the speakers on the field? And you and I are supposed to be right here with David. Do our actions portray that there is a God for Israel and for his people, for the church? Do our actions portray that I belong to him? Do our words sound like his words? Not that we're taking to ourselves God's prerogatives as the sovereign, but that we've taken his worldview and we think like he thinks about things. He's in control, we're not. If he can, even if he, the Lord may deliver us, O King Nebuchadnezzar, but even if he doesn't, we're still not going to give you an answer concerning this thing. We don't have to give you an answer. We're not going to bow down. Whatever happens, burn us up. And, and that is, that is the, the attitude David has, and that's the attitude that we're encouraged to have as we consider the story. Well, we're out of time by the clock, so let me apply this for you as we close. And if it doesn't work for you, believe me, this works for me. The portrait we have of King David as someone with, with ice-cold blood in his veins talking to the king talk like oh yeah i killed a lion i killed a bear i got this 
talking to Goliath, making it about, about God, and it's not about us, it's about him, and so he's going to do something through me here. This is all emblematic of our Savior. This all portrays Jesus' attitude in the crisis because he never wavers in his faith in God. God is the one I represent. God is the one that's been affronted. I am here to address that because I've read enough of the law. I know what he wants. I know his attitude. The sacred trust you've been given is manifold, therefore. One of them is the word of God. You know who God is and you know what he wants. It's a trust. And so knowing that is good, but then what do I do on that basis? That's the challenge. Do you have the moral courage built on faith in Christ, built on the rock, to say, this is what God wants, so this is what I do? Our conduct is supposed to derive from our convictions. We're supposed to grow out of what God has said and what we believed into what we choose, what we do. And that ability to choose is that sacred, volitional delegation. It's a duty what you do with your choices. You may not be uh, able to do something quite as flashy and spectacular that everyone talks about, but we have no idea the daily battles we're facing, how the angels are rejoicing in heaven when we serve God and say no to the flesh. What we don't tend to think of as a stewardship are these challenges. You don't think of Goliath as something God gave David to solve. We don't think of the hardship as something God has given me the privilege of trusting him through this and serving. But if we would try to bring that mentality to bear on the situation, I didn't say it feels better, but I'm stronger. I can, I can dig in a little bit and I'll feel like I'm slipping around in the mud. Our Father, we thank you for eternal life through your son, Jesus Christ, and the challenge of stewardship, of being diligent stewards of what you've entrusted to us to own the crisis, to own the challenge. And then in doing that, facing it head on with your scripture that the battle really is not ours. It's not our, nothing is ours. It's all you. We're yours. The battle's the Lord's. As we entrust ourselves to you and we trust you with what you've said, Father, give us victories over the flesh, over the world, over the devil, even as we um, keep our eyes on your son. In Christ's name we pray, amen.